Welcome to Skillman Church of Christ, and thank you, Case, for helping me light the candle this morning. We are at the third week of our Advent series, and I don't know if you've noticed, but each week, Jake has been, last two weeks, Jake has been getting up here and lighting uh, these candles, and it's part of the Advent season. Uh, There are five candles. There's three blue ones, a pink one, and a white one. And for the last two weeks, we've lit the blue candles, which represent hope and peace, uh, next week, we will light the pink candle, red candle, which will signify love. And on Christmas Eve, uh, we'll light the white candle, which signifies uh, Jesus Christ. And today, my son Case uh, helped me uh, light the second blue candle, uh, which signifies joy, which is our topic today, joy. And what a cool topic to talk about in the world that we live in today. Because so much of what we do is because we have to do it. It's out of obligation or out of duty that we do things. So much of what we do in life is just because we have to do it. It's just, it wouldn't get done if we weren't there. But then, amidst this duty-filled life in Philippians 4 that Bimpe read so beautifully, we read the words from the Apostle Paul that says... Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And then you have to read it a second time. Rejoice always. And then you think to yourself, oh, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, Paul didn't have kids. Uh, Paul never had to drive in rush hour traffic in Dallas. He never had to set up a toy crib or something that you got for Christmas. Paul didn't understand what it meant because there's no way that Paul could write rejoice in the Lord always. I mean, that is literally impossible in the world that we live in today. It's so hard in this world that we live in that's so driven and fast-paced. But if you look even deeper in this text, I think on further reflection, we, we can come to the conclusion that Paul probably knew what he was talking about. Because the very end of this text in Philippians 4, Paul talks about this word peace, the peace that passes all understanding. And in our sense of the word peace, it's a powerful word, but back in the first century, in the ancient Near East, in the Hebraic sense, peace meant so much more than just the absence of conflict. Peace had the significance of the word shalom which literally was not just the absence of conflict, but the filling of all that was good and right in the world. To live in shalom, to live in this peace that passes all understanding, was literally to live and walk in harmony with the way that God created the world, that rhythm, that flow. And here Paul says that that peace that passes all understanding, that's obtainable. And then if you go back in, back in the text, it says, well, that's obtainable. But in order to do that, we can't be anxious about anything. But then you, you back it up and say, well, to not to be anxious about anything, we need to be people who are joyful, who rejoice in the Lord always. So there is something to this word, this rejoice, anx- uh, anxious, peace, somehow, in some way. They're connected. There is a relationship between them all. 
And I think Paul has something going on here, something worth reading about, that if we want peace, we can't be anxious. And the way towards that is to live life with a posture of joy. We begin with joy, and that joy impacts our anxiousness and our worry. And then that, that lack of anxiousness and worry, it leads to a place of shalom, of peace, of oneness, oneness with, with, with the creator of the world. In the late 90s, there was this designer, a famous designer by the name of Bruce Mao. And Bruce Mao, he wrote this book called The Incomplete Manifesto for Growth. And in this book, he writes 43 rules that apply to anyone who wants to engage in creative work, in art, in design, in photography, any sort of art at all. He has 43 rules that help, that, that create and manifest this artful life. And if you look at one of the rules that he says, he says that joy is the engine. Joy is the engine. When you look at beautiful art, design, and creation, he says, at the very heart of all these works is joy. Joy is the engine. It is not only the starting point, but it is the fuel that keeps it going. And if you look at Scripture and building on, on Ma's quote, joy, I think, is not only the engine and the catalyst for great art and design and creativity. But if you look at the word joy in Scripture, you can see that joy is in fact, and it can be said, that joy is the very engine of the universe. That this world was created in Genesis 1 out of love and joy and desire. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, and he talks about why this whole thing began and the whole plan of Jesus, and it says that this was all according to his good pleasure, to God's pleasure. That this world that was created, this thing that we have going on, it's based in the pleasure of God, that God is, is motivated, that joy was the engine for all of this. That God didn't create this world out of obligation or duty, but rather out of des desire and joy. And then we read in John chapter 15, when Jesus is spending the last few moments with his disciples, and he's giving him the last words of wisdom, and he says this, he says in verse 15, 11 of chapter 15, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Joy is a powerful word. Joy is the engine. It's the life force. This is a story of love, yes. But this is also a story of joy. We are apart. We are all here together because of joy. And in a moment this morning of introspection, would you allow me to ask a few questions for you to think about, about your own life and how you are responding in joy here and now? The question I have, the questions I have are this. How joyful are you this morning? How joyful are you? How joyful do you feel deep down in your core? Is there an unshakable, stable joy that governs the beating of your heart? 
Is joy the engine that is sustaining you? Or are you driven by obligation and duty? How much of what you do each and every day is driven by anxiousness? And how much of it each and every day is driven by joy? How joyful are we here and now? If you look at the statistics that are out there recently on joyfulness and anxiety, it's pretty amazing. In fact, the ADAD, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, says, according to their research, this might be a problem that we are facing as a country. According to these guys, the ADAD, the leading cause of disability in America, the number one cause of disability is a diagnosis of MDD, which is major depressive disorder. In fact, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States. They affect 40 million adults. In fact, that's almost 20% of the entire population struggles with anxiousness and worry and this lack of joy. It's a real thing. It's a real deal. Anxiousness, anxiety, this is a real deal. And I know that there is major influences, chemical, biological influences that affect anxiousness and anxiety disorders. But could it also be said that one of the factors, one of the factors leading to this high statistic, statistic of anxiousness and lack of joy is because we as Americans are being sold a false set of goods about what ultimately leads to joy? Could it be said that we are being sold a false set of goods? We are being told something will lead to joy when in fact it does it doesn't lead to that joy. As society, sometimes we walk down these paths that we think might lead to happiness, but really they're just paths that go to nowhere. And we just end up keeping walking and walking, searching for this joy that cannot be found. I mean, have you guys ever walked in a path the wrong direction and realized that you've been walking forever and not reached your destination or not reached where you wanted to go? My parents are here this morning. I was just thinking about this time that we were in Peru and we were walking in Canchanque. We were, my parents and our four kids, and they were younger at that time, but we had heard about this amazing waterfall. This waterfall that you could swim and it has beautiful waterfall that you could go down. And it was only like a, a two hour walk from our hotel to this waterfall. And so we started walking, and an hour and a half, it didn't look like any waterfalls were nearby, but we kept asking people, well, where is this waterfall? And they'd point here, they'd point there. And then two hours came and no waterfall. <laughs> Three hours came and we learned an important lesson in that in Peru, in this save face culture, that if we ask for directions and they don't know, they'll just tell you something anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so it must have been amazing. We were just walking all over the place. Finally, we ran into somebody who knew where, where the waterfall was, who we trusted. And so we're talking to him, and my daughter was beside me, Parker. And we asked, well, how far is this waterfall? And he says, oh, no, it's just right over here. And he said, well, how long? It was about a four-hour walk. Parker, she was about eight years old. She just collapsed on the ground. 
She said, I will not go to that waterfall. We ended up getting there eventually. And it wasn't as amazing as we thought it would, but we walked down, we walked down this path that was taking us nowhere for so long. And I think as Americans, there is no path that is more deceptive in the search of joy than American consumerism. There is no path that lies to us more. There is no path that is longer without reward than this lie that we are sold each and every day that we are only one purchase away from happiness. That we are just one purchase away from happiness, from having that dream life that we want, from having the happiness that we've always wanted, the girl or boy that we've always wanted to date. There is no greater lie than this in America today, and it is a huge problem that's impacting our joy as a nation. Especially during this time of year, Christmas, during this time of year where the whole point of it is buying gifts for people, and you got this party, and you got that party, and you got to buy this, and you got to buy that. We're bombarded with all these advertisements from, Merced, you know, from the car commercials that, that, that link amazing houses to the car that you drive. We are bombarded with this each and every day, and we're driven to the point where we think that we need all these things, that our desire for all these things is impacting how we spend our time, our money, how our relationships are. There is, no more, there, is, there is no greater danger than this idea that we have right now, this time of year, than this lie that we have of American consumerism. And it wasn't always this way. In fact, when I was researching for this sermon, I learned that pre-World War I, the people of this nation, the people of America, they only bought what they needed. They bought what was there for the day, for the month. They only bought what was needed for their survival. Then post-World War I, something happened with a surplus of goods, the increase in the economy and the GDP. All of a sudden, there was a surplus of things, and the bankers and the advertisers and the stores, the stores began to, to work with a plan of shifting the American mentality from a need-based society to a desire-based society. In fact, there was uh, a famous banker, a famous quote, a guy named Paul Major with Lehman Brothers. This is a quote from 1927, right after uh, the First World War. He said, We must shift America from a needs to a desire culture. People must be trained to desire, to want, to, to want new things, even before the old had been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. This new kind of advertisement, this new kind of strategy was only made possible because of a guy named Edward Bernays. And doing the research of this guy here, Edward Bernays, he was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And he was responsible for showing corporations how to make people want things that they did not need by linking mass-produced goods to the unconscious desires of the soul. This guy, Bernays, he claims that he was the first person to tell car companies that they could sell cars as a symbol of male sexuality. 
He pioneered techniques like product placement and celebrity endorsements, relentlessly attacking this idea or repeating this idea of pro-consumption. In fact, I was in this research, I came across a video made in the 1920s from a, a celebrity aviator by the name of Mrs. Stillman. Look what she is saying about what we should wear. You all have interesting characters, but some of them are all hidden. I wonder why you all want to dress always the same, with the same hats and the same coats. I'm sure all of you are interesting and have wonderful things about you, but looking at you in the street, you all look so much the same. And that's why I'm talking to you about the psychology of dress. Try and express yourselves better in your dress. So it's about an 18-minute second, and Mrs. Stillman, this celebrity aviator, and I don't know if you saw the beginning, but she says, you know, you guys are all the same. Why are you always dressing the same? You need to dress differently. You need to wear different hats. This is where it begins, my friends. And all this to say, man, we are getting played. <laughs> we, as Americans, we as Christians, we're getting played at the which path will lead us to joy. We are being played. And it's almost like we are living in a society... Because this was the 1920, imagine all this time that has taken place. The advertisers and the strategies, they've become even more better, more efficient with their strategies. And now spending money is as easy as possible. I mean, I was on the flight not too long ago, two, two or three years ago. It was a longer flight, about four hours. And we walked on the plane. And I was, oh, I was so happy because they had the televisions on the back of the seat. And I had kids. And so I was, oh, this is going to be great because I won't have to entertain them the entire time. They can watch cartoons. So you're not going to believe this story about how I got played on an airplane. So we were there, and the kids saw there was cartoons on the, the back of the seat, so they began to watch it, these movies, cartoons. And about halfway into the movie, the, the airplane's in the middle of the air. The kids are in the middle of this movie. The movie stops. And it pauses and it says, please insert your credit card to finish the movie. Now, my kids are young. They're, they're like six or seven years old. We're on this like tight plane. I don't want them to start crying and throwing a fit. So what do I do? I take my credit card out and I swipe on an airplane to finish a cartoon. I got played. Totally played. And now with, with big data, with, with, with all the statistics out there, you can, you can know just by your browsing history, stores like Target, Walmart, Amazon, they know that you're pregnant before you are. <laughs> but now becomes the good news, is that Advent tells a different story. Advent presents a different type of kingdom, a different reality. And I also want to say, there are some advertisers in the audience. You're not the enemy. <laughs> you are not the enemy. I'm not saying that. In fact, you have incredible power that I hope that you use for good in this world. All I'm saying is that the pathway to happiness that we have been sold is not a sustainable pathway. You are not, you are not just one purchase away from happiness. Advent provides a different path 
Because in the nativity story, there's two different kings. In the nativity story, as we celebrate this Christmas season, there's King Herod, and then there's King Jesus. And they, do, they both provide a different kingdom to live in with different rules and realities. You see King Herod, the king, the, most, the wealthy king of that time, he pursued joy by the means of material gain, by the means of seeking power and wealth and notoriety. And that's one path towards joy that we can see that, that in my opinion, doesn't lead to ultimate joy. But then we see a different version, a different vision of what joy can, how joy can be attained in the other king, King Jesus, this baby who was born from nothing in a stable as a weak, not known baby in the middle of nowhere. And we have two different visions of how joy can be obtained, one through wealth material gains and power, and the other through humbleness, through servanthood, through nothingness and through simplicity and through relationships. Henry Nouwen puts it best, in my opinion, when he said this, quote, At first sight, joy seems to be connected with being different. When you receive a compliment or win an award, you experience the joy of not being the same as others. You are faster, smarter, more beautiful, and it is the di- that difference that brings you joy. But such joy is very temporary. So this is the joy of King Herod, of trying to be different, of trying to be better, of trying to obtain and separate yourself from someone, and that distinction would add value and joy to your life. But true joy is hidden where we are the same as other people, fragile and mortal. It is the joy of belonging to the human race. It is the joy of being with others as a friend, a companion, a fellow traveler. This is the joy of Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Joy is found in the everyday, in the mundane in the fragile, in the the mortal. Joy is rooted in a deep-seated identity in Jesus and in God. We see all these advertisements all the time, especially on the TV. But if what Henry Nouwen and what Paul and what Jesus say are true, joy is found in these everyday moments, not in those big purchases or those big moments, or those promotions, but joy is found in the everyday relationships. There's a video that I made of a different kind of commercial for uh, the pathway to joy. It's a far reach from you to me 
other people, fragile and mortal. It is a joy of belonging to the human race. It is a joy of being with others as a friend, a companion, a fellow traveler. Joy is this. This is joy, the touch of a friend being held, holding a newborn baby, walking on the path with a close one. And Advent speaks of this as the source of joy. It's not of an external, but it's something internal, birthed from within that God provides and sustains us and motivates us through the tough times. Each Sunday we offer an invitation at Skillman. The invitation today, first and foremost, is for you to participate in this joy, to walk with joy, to seek joy in the smallest, most mundane places in life. Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith, the author of joy, and if you want to be his disciple and begin walking on this path where there is no anxiousness and there's that peace that passes all understanding, we offer that now if you want to be baptized. But at this point, our prayer is that from the inside out, from within, from the mundane, that we can begin to experience the richness of joy during this holiday season. To realize, to not buy into the lies that will bring us happiness, but to look what God teaches us, the source of true joy and happiness. If you need to come forward, why don't you come while we stand and sing?